Well, today uh, we get to dive into a story in Joshua that's both absolutely foundational to the rest of the book uh, and absolutely astonishing at the same time. Uh, it's a story that, that reappears three different times in the New Testament and so clearly points to God's mercy and grace for us as ruined sinners. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of Joshua. It's on page 178 in your pew Bibles. Page 178. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, please take that one home with you as our, our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. Uh, that's how you'll most significantly know God through his word. So take that and read it, ask questions, pray through it. Um, okay, so Joshua chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 1 through 24. Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two, two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men, uh, the woman had taken the two men and hid them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. And the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to, to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by, by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them, them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, 
And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Our three themes uh, that I want us to see in today's passage are these. Uh, Number one, a merciful God. Number two, Rahab's faith. And number three, the crimson cord. So number one, a merciful God. From the very beginning today, I want us to notice something very peculiar about this passage, and that's this. Uh, This passage, all of chapter 2, does not need to exist for the narrative to carry forward. Uh, What I mean is, uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3 in Joshua could almost go seamlessly together. Uh, At the end of chapter 1, Joshua took what the Lord commanded him, and he commanded the people to get ready and and to cross the river into the land. Chapter 3 begins with the people of God crossing the river into the land. So chapter 2 is kind of a a definite sidestep in the flow of the narrative. You're going to get tired of this, but remember what we said two weeks ago in the first week of our series. This is history. But it's prophetic history. The author is telling us about a historical event here in chapter 2, but it's a sermon. Therefore, we need to be asking the why question. We know the what happened, but why is the author telling us about what goes down in chapter 2? It's funny, almost every single person that that I've told that I'm preaching through the the book of Joshua has said something along the lines of, man, you're going to have to deal with God wiping out an entire people. That's hard. That is hard. And we're going to deal with that. But I want us to consider a couple of truths. Number one, we have to be extremely careful. Uh, when we come to the Bible and assume that we're more loving than God. In other words, when we look at a book like Joshua and kind of get squeamish about how God seems to be acting, we don't get to say, I'd have done it better than God. When we do that, we're committing the same sin that Adam and Eve did in the garden. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they thought they knew better than God. They didn't. We don't either. So that's truth number one. Second, and this is why I believe that chapter two exists where it does, 
God is also abundantly merciful, even in the book of Joshua. I believe that the author of Joshua includes this story for us before they cross the river and take the land and go to battle with anyone. I believe that he includes it here so that we get a glimpse of God's mercy and compassion and grace from the beginning. So think about this. First, on the Israelite side. Earlier, Kyle read the marathon text for us. He read this narrative of Kadesh Barnea. Uh, when God told Moses to send these spies into the land. What happened there? They, didn't, they did not trust God, except for Joshua and Caleb. They trembled in fear at the thought of going into the land that was promised to them. They then turned and told all of the rest of the people of God, essentially not to trust God. That was a horrible horrible moment in Israel's history. God didn't have to give them a second chance. But verse 1 of our text today is a reminder that God is faithful even when we're faithless. If you're reading along through the Old Testament and you read verse 1 right here, and it says that spies are being sent in to go view the land, you should immediately be thinking, hmm, This has happened once before, and it didn't go well. But we should also be seeing God's mercy in bringing them to the border again and giving them a second chance. Then uh, these spies go into the land, and at the end of verse 1, where did they land? And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Well, why did they go to the house of a prostitute? Some commentators say that this would be the most likely place to be hidden because foreign men were in and out of there all the time. But we honestly don't know their motives for going. On the other hand, I believe this is just like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. You remember that in John 4, it tells us that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We know that physically, that's not true. Jesus could have gone around Samaria like everyone else who wanted to avoid it. What the text is telling us in John 4 is that Jesus had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. He was there appointed by God to show her God's love and mercy and grace and truth. No different here in Joshua. But the text goes out of the way to let us know that Rahab was a prostitute. In fact, she represents the people of Canaan pretty well. As we go on in the book, we're going to learn more about Canaanite culture. They were violent. They were murderous. They were sexually immoral people. Yet, the story of Rahab, from the beginning, clues us in That God is not just a bloodthirsty God who goes into Canaan and wipes out everyone indiscriminately. No. Here, we have a prostitute who many would probably think beyond redemption, and God seeks her out. He's a merciful God who sovereignly saves even the worst of sinners like you and like me. So understand this. The story of Rahab is humbling. 
and beautiful. Uh, For the Jewish people, and for many of us today, we like to to kind of strut around and, and think that God got a good deal in us, right? We pridefully like to think that that God saves us because we're good people or because we were intelligent enough to find God. Wrong. Rahab's story in this text doesn't get whitewashed at all. She's a prostitute. God sought her out and mercifully redeemed her. Guess who gets the glory there? God. And that's the point. That's the point of your redemption story and mine too. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Rahab's story is a stunning story of redemption. It confirms God's welcome to all people, whatever their condition. We're going to find out in Joshua chapter 6 that the promises made here in chapter 2 were actually fulfilled. Uh, Joshua 6, 25, it says, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, on what basis was Rahab saved? Point two, Rahab's faith. Again, I want us to see in the text that Rahab was not saved because she was a good person. She was saved because of her faith in God. Side note, a lot of people read this story and they immediately ask, okay, what's the deal with Rahab lying to the king's men? Does she get a pass on that because she she saved the spies? Well, not exactly. Uh, if, if we try to, to, to whitewash her behavior, we've missed the point. Uh, the text neither condemns nor excuses Rahab's lie. This text isn't about what Rahab did wrong, but about what she did right. Uh, one commentator said it this way. He said, it is tragic when people snag their pants on the nail of Rahab's lie quibble endlessly about the matter and never get around to hearing Rahab's truth, which the writer has conspired to make the center of the whole narrative. This is spot on. I'm not going to go into great detail here, but often biblical writers, that they use this literary device known as a chiasm uh, to, to kind of emphasize the main point of a text. So think of it kind of like a sandwich, Uh, Let's say you have five verses. You've got two kind of matching pieces of bread on the top and the bottom. You've got two matching pieces of lettuce just inside the two pieces of bread. And then in the middle, you've got the meat by itself. Chapter two as a whole is a sandwich with Rahab's confession squarely in the middle of it. The author wants us to zero in on that It's the main point of chapter 2. In fact, it represents one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in biblical narrative. So, with that at the center of chapter 2, what does Rahab confess? Look with me at verses 8 through 13. It says, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, 
and let all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. First, and this is, this is brilliant writing, the confession that she makes starts with the word, I know. And it's meant to be a contrast with the lie that she told in verse 4, when she said to the king's men, I don't know, or I did not know. In other words, her true confession is now replacing her former deceit. Do you understand that? The Bible teaches that, that no matter what you've done, no matter how far gone you might think that you are, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. Your former deceit can be replaced by your true confession. Back to the text. What does Rahab say? She makes three different statements under the banner of that I know. She says, I know, verse 9, that the Lord has given you the land. This summarizes the basic theological message of the entire book of Joshua. The same promise that God made to Moses and the people of God and to Joshua in chapter 1 is on the lips of a prostitute in chapter 2. That's amazing. And it's, it's not like, well, kind of, maybe, sort of, might type of thing. She's confident in this statement. I know that the Lord has given you the land. Remember, the Israelites are still on the other side of the Jordan River to the east. Part of their history, as we learned earlier, was that they did not trust that God had given them the land. At Kadesh Barnea, they whiffed. They chickened out. They didn't confidently believe in God. Yet, here is Rahab confidently proclaiming that she knows the Lord has given them the land. And notice the verb tense here. Has given. Verse 9, has given. She's speaking as if it's a done deal. Because she knows that it is. And notice, most importantly, this word Lord. It's the word Yahweh. She knows the personal name of God. And she credits him personally as having given the land and thus fulfilling his promise. Who would have dreamed that this Canaanite prostitute knew Israel's God by name? Honestly, at this point, she seems more confident that Yahweh is going to deliver on his promise than Joshua and Israel. Let's continue on in verse 9, still under the banner of I know. She makes a second statement. I know that the fear of you has fallen upon us. This is exactly what God promised in Deuteronomy 11, verse 25. 
Deuteronomy 11.25, God says to his people, No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord, your God, will lay the fear of you and the dread of you upon all the land that you shall tread, as he has promised you. And let's just be clear here. The fear of Israel is not because of their own strength. It's because of who they've aligned themselves with. Yahweh, the warrior God. I saw this video clip the other day. It's an old clip, but it kind of reminds me of what's happening here. So if you'll, you'll watch this little clip. Perfect. Uh, Amazing, right? Uh, She thinks she's killing it with the hula hoop, but it's really her dad behind her. Understand this. The Canaanites aren't afraid of Israel because of how great Israel is. They fear Israel because of how great their God is. Rahab proclaims this. Rahab knows this. Statement three. She says, I know that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Very similar to statement two, that the fear of God has gone before his people into the land. Check this out. In the Exodus, right after the people of God crossed the Red Sea miraculously, Moses sings this song. Exodus chapter 15, verse 1. This song starts like this. It says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So they've just crossed over the Red Sea miraculously, and they start singing this song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Then down in verse 15, we see this. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So what they sang here in in verse 15, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away, is being confirmed by Rahab 40 years later. Okay, so Rahab believes some things about God, clearly. But why does she believe these things? Look at verse 11. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. So she just kind of gave the bookends to Israel's wilderness journey, right? She heard they crossed the Red Sea. She heard what just happened on the Jordan. She heard. Remember Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing, 
She heard how the Lord, there, there it is again, God's personal name. She heard how Yahweh delivered them from the Egyptians and how they closer to home defeated the two Amorite kings just across the border. She's basing her trust in God on the history of redemption. She's looking at Yahweh's track record in the past and trusting that he'll continue to do what he's always done. Friends, that's why we read the Old Testament. Because, number one, it all points to Jesus. And second, because it recounts God's track record of faithfulness to his people. If you want to know if God's going to be faithful to you today, read the Old Testament. Ask, has he been faithful to fulfill all of his promises to his people all the way through? Yes, he has. Rahab knows this. Then, here comes the core of her confession of faith. Verse 11, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Here we go. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see that? She's proclaiming Yahweh to be supreme above all things. The language she uses here is only found in two other places in the Bible, on the lips of Moses and King Solomon in Deuteronomy 4.39 and 1 Kings 8.23. Moses and Solomon. I'd say Rahab the prostitute is in good theological company here. But it goes even farther. Look at verses 12 and 13. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save me alive, my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. So not only does she confess Yahweh to be supreme above all things, she throws herself at his mercy. She seeks refuge in his covenant love. This word that she uses, deal kindly, it's the Hebrew word hesed. It's the word that we talk a lot about through the book of Ruth, if you'll remember. It's God's covenant loyalty and goodness. So see this. Genuine faith doesn't just stop at being convinced of the reality of God. That's good. But it goes past that. It moves forward to take refuge in God. And that's exactly what Rahab does. She believes God is who he says he is, first and foremost. But she asks to be saved. She knows that that's her only hope. Before we move on, I want us to see that, that Rahab ends up in the New Testament three different times based on that confession of faith and what she did. First, she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, verse 5. I love this. Rahab is King David's great-great-grandmother. And the Bible goes out of the way to tell us that Rahab is a key part of God's redemption plan for the entire world through Christ. She's in the lineage of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Then, two other New Testament authors commend Rahab's faith. 
James chapter 2, verses 20, verse 25. James 2, verse 25. It says, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out in another way? In other words, James's point here is that Rahab's faith was real faith. We know that because she acted on it. That's what real faith does. She risked her neck literally by hiding the spies from the king. She was essentially, in that moment, denouncing allegiance to the king of Canaan and pledging allegiance to the king of the universe, as expressed through her actions. That kind of faith is what James praises. That's real faith. Then, Hebrews chapter 11, which we know as the hall of faith, right? Hebrews 11, the author lists several amazing biblical examples of exemplary faith. Hebrews 11, verse 31, it says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Her faith is an example to us all. Ultimately, what the author of Joshua wants us to get here is this. God saves those who take refuge in him through faith. God saves those who take refuge in him through faith. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're a Canaanite prostitute or a seemingly squeaky clean middle-class man. God saves those who take refuge in him through faith. Think about this. In every single way, Rahab was an outsider. She was a woman. She was a Gentile. She was a sinner. But God saved her. An outsider became an insider. That's Rahab's story. And if you're a Christian, that's your story too. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13, Paul says, Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the heart of the good news of Jesus right there. Jesus came to this earth and put on flesh, became fully human. He lived a perfect life in every single way. He went to the cross and he died for Rahab's sin and for yours and for mine when we take refuge in him through faith. Those who are far off are brought near by the blood of Christ. If you're here today and you know that you're far from God and you'd like to be near, you'd like to to take refuge in God through faith, we invite you to do that even right now. You, like Rahab, can be saved from the coming and just wrath of God through turning from sin and trusting in Christ. 
you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the main point of Joshua 2. But I want us to see something else in the text. Point three, the crimson cord. So the spies, they go into the land. They find Rahab, who saves their lives and confesses her faith in God. They, in turn, make a covenant with her. And what is it that they tell her to do? Look at verses 18 through 21. It says, Behold, when we come into the land, they're talking about when they come back later, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. While some commentators are divided on this, I can't help but see the symbolism of that scarlet cord in this text. If you know your Old Testament, what does that remind you of? Passover, right? Something red that goes on the outside of your house to protect you from God's imminent judgment. Passover. God's people were slaves in Egypt. He came and told them to sacrifice a lamb and place the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their house. When the angel of death came, they'd be spared by the blood of the lamb. Exodus 12, verse 13, it says, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. I can't help but see that here in Joshua 2. Rahab has confessed faith. She's taken refuge in God's mercy. And she's given a sign of deliverance, a reminder of God's protection over her. As you came in today, you see these red ropes on your seats. I want each of you to take those home with you as a reminder of God's deliverance. You can put it on your door, you can keep it in your car, whatever you want to do. But I want you to keep that as a constant reminder that if you've taken refuge in God, Christ's blood has covered you. You, like Rahab, are saved and forgiven. Even more than that red rope, Jesus gave us a scarlet drink to remember him. Each time we take the bread and the cup in the Lord's Supper, we're meant to be reminded that as the people of God, we're redeemed. We're reminded that the wrath of God is no longer our cup to drink. Instead, Christ drank it on our behalf. Not because we deserve it or because we've been good enough, but because of God's glorious mercy and his covenant promise to us. And it's to that meal that we turn now. Let's pray.